This episode contains discussions of abuse, torture, and genocide, all of which have mentions of children. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Domination Committee, a monthly podcast where we discuss villains from media and history, what makes a good villain, and what makes a bad villain better. I'm your host, X Zala, and I'm on a holiday dressed in black. Oh, wait, that's every day. And I'm your other host, Trin Zala, and I regret to inform you that you will do what you're told. Oh, honey, save that for the bedroom. Well, today's villain that we're covering comes from the way-ish back machine, a little bit after the time of Episodes 8 Petio, who was during World War II. What we're going to cover today is going to be pretty hard for my accent, so don't mind me just slaughtering words left and right. For example, just today's villain that we're covering is known as Salath Sar, or more commonly known as Pol Pot. Pol Pot. Pol Pot. And basically, kind of the entire Khmer Rouge, an organization or a communist organization in which he was the lead figure in during a Cambodian genocide. And he was the primary figure for causing such genocide. Yes, exactly. Well, I guess before we get into Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, we actually have feedback. No one was villainous this month. We finally got our feedback for episodes eight and nine. So we'll get into that. So the first point of feedback for episode 8 mentioned that we led into Petio being admitted into an asylum, which basically gave listeners a double take because we whiplashed them by talking about him getting a degree and starting his own practice without dwelling much on what actually happened with his admission to the asylum. The feedback mentioned that it was okay, but, quote, I just felt like my neck hurt from that double take, and when I turned back, you were already on to the next point, unquote. Sorry for the physical therapy needed. The World Domination Committee will not cover any of that. That was the info we had to work with. <laughs> fair enough. And to be fair, it was just kind of a normal state in asylum. He was just doing asylum things. <laughs> I mean, the fact that he was supposed to be admitted, but then did a boom flip it, I think took everyone aback, including us, including listeners. But yes. <laughs> that it is what it is. And we also talked about kind of, I guess, uh, how Petio could have been a hero. And we have some feedback that mentions that he could have been like even Oscar Schindler of France if he like really like crafted his image well after true, that and just true. like stopped killing and like, you know. Well, also based on how we said he could have been a hero for him getting people out of France, even if he was lying about it, Oscar Schindler actually did get people out of Nazi occupation. So like if Petio lied he could have been so that's a really fair point a fair comparison really also i'm so sorry yes there's no bad babies at the very end of that episode no bad babies there's no good night babies at the end of that uh episode the patio episode i was working uh, and i had to go to a different country so i grabbed a laptop and i just didn't have that file on me and the so file I, was temporarily lost for that episode only yes and so i had to uh basically when i got back I was able to get to my battle station, and this one will actually have it. (laughs) 
Well, also episode nine had it, so we've redeemed ourselves unless we fuck up again, which we won't. Uh, another point of feedback for episode eight was that at least in terms of the true crime, serial killer, mass murderer stuff, we might need to shake up the format to be more or less analytical. I would agree to disagree on this one. All I'll say is we can shake it up, but let's not do ad reads to shake it up for like real historical episodes because that's kind of insensitive. But you know, we might do a paper cut here or there. We might ad lib a little bit more. Who knows? Be a little we'll, bit more glib. We'll, we'll see what the future holds. Our sponsor, IRS.finance, seems to have been seized by the government. Oh, for episode nine, yes. Yeah. So that's fun. I guess the IRS took them down a peg. Yeah. We also had feedback for that episode that we didn't really mention the parallels that everything everywhere all at once had to depression and coming of age for Gen Z. I think we touched on that a little bit with the middle child GT kid aspect of joy, but probably glossed over it because we were going through so much. I mean, there was everything everywhere to cover on that. But it is a fair point that a lot of the aspects of Joy and Joe Boo is tied with like depression and angst of being in this new generation. So uh, I think I'm sure there are other video essays that really dive into that if you want to listen to those. There also was kind of a mention about uh, or adding on to how like there's sometimes intergenerational trauma or uh, maybe I guess even interdimensional trauma, you could say, <laughs> where one aspect that's kind of covered, um, which is not usually covered, is where the Gen Z or like the newer generation, the second generation, is trying to force the older generations to be better in like the philosophy of the, the new nation. And that's like has all of this like cultural aspects that come on top of that. And it's kind of hard to uh, like reverse teach those sort of ideals in that way. We kind of hinted that like Joy was trying to live up to Evelyn, trying to live up to Gong Gong's expectation. But that might have only been like a light scratch on the surface of so many other factors coming on board with like old philosophy trying to mix with like new philosophy. Yeah. And then trying to, I guess create some sort of mixture that actually works and is coherent. I think we would have had a whole long segment about the intergenerationality, which we didn't really cover, maybe because of our own bias. I mean, you are an immigrant. You're a first-generation immigrant, though. So we don't really know that scope. So maybe we wouldn't be the best to cover it, but it is definitely a very important factor of that movie that we kind of glossed over. Also, listener now brings up a good point that Quote, the worst Evelyn being the worst is also thrust upon her. Knowing she's the worst frees her to be something more, and Alpha Joy is the worst too, which is why they connect. Nav also mentions that immigrants see this with other immigrants who get more successful. Say, if you are comparing yourself to those who have become doctors or lawyers or business executives, where you are still starting out, say, with your laundromat, there's that competition aspect where you feel the worst, but that also can be a a blank slate for you to start with. I would say so. There's also some comments on like the style of like maybe metamodernism as a whole and how it kind of has like this like uh, almost ADHD kind of feel to it. <laughs> Short attention span, what, rather. What? Huh? What are we talking Scroll. about? And that's framed in like kind of this emotional roller coaster of going through so many different things so fast. And maybe that's just like that fast paced stylistic thing is just maybe kind of what we go through in a modern day yeah with the tiktoks and stuff all the genre bending seen in everything everywhere is also kind of uh proliferating into other forms of media but i think it really is telling of the different i guess generational gap but also propelling the story forward as not necessarily a narrative device but a, a very important stylistic choice for exploring a multiverse or many like exactly and i think it's also with the kind of short form it's like keeping the engagement 
high since we're all kind of like really addicted to <laughs> engagement, I guess you could say. Yeah, you get your older generations into watching this show because it's interesting or they might vibe with the plot point. You get the younger generations in because, oh yeah, multiverse, cool, oh, bang, flash, very snappy editing and lots of different things going on. So it's very uh, diverse in who can watch it. Yeah, exactly. Finally, there's also a note that Jobu, as a villain, acted as an enabler. I mean, the fact that she was traveling the multiverses to try and find a bond with some form of Evelyn until she reaches the multiverse that the film is set in. She doesn't actually really do anything other than enable Joy and Evelyn's reconciliation. Nav says she's a MacGuffin, an everything MacGuffin, if you will, also known as a plot device that moves the plot forward. I think Jobu made a very interesting everything MacGuffin. I would say so. Now that we have feedback out of the way and we don't have to put a hit on anyone for being villainous and not giving us feedback, let's get into today's villain, Paul Pot. So how did we discover Paul Pot? I actually did not know this one until after some feedback from Nav that we had just kind of covered. Uh, they suggested covering Paul Pot mm-hmm. um, after, I think, episode nine. And then I was like, you know what? That's actually a really great historical villain that I don't hear that much about. I hear a lot about Stalin. I hear a lot about like Mao during that time. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, obviously Hitler. Um, I mean, some people would even say like, I don't know, figures like Oppenheimer and Truman, but you don't hear much about Pol Pot. Yeah, he's kind of in the background of dictatorships. Like, obviously, he was a very notable one when you do your research, but if you ask the layman in the street, hey, who are some bad dictators? He's not typically going to come up. Right, and especially also the actions that he did was not well covered in school. And I went to a very, like, international school that covered, like, the history of multiple countries, but we never dove specifically into Cambodia, only Vietnam. Right, exactly. You hear little snippets about, oh, yeah, stuff was going on in Cambodia, but it's very much glossed over, at least in the education that we had. Exactly. So I thought that was really great villain suggestion. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to get through everything, but we're going to try to get through a lot of it. Yeah, this might be a little bit more of an abridgment of everything that Paul Pot has done, but we're going to try and cover it well. In addition, after we got the recommendation, I was also watching a wrestling TV show, and one of the side characters actually has a harrowing monologue about escaping the Cambodian genocide, which I was surprised. I had never heard about it until the recommendation, and then in this show, this character has this monologue. I was like, oh shit, wow, the stars are aligning. (laughs) Isn't that how it always goes? (laughs) Yeah. So, Pol Pot did a lot in a very short amount of time, it seems like. I mean, it was a fair amount of time, actually, but the the way everything transpired happened fast, but in terms of years, like, he was involved for many years. Oh, so many years. He started early. Pol Pot is a neo-Luddite and former Cambodian prime minister and eventually dictator, ooh, I guess ooh, you could say. Penis potato. From 1975 to 1979, yeah. uh, most specifically. He was the leader of the Khmer Rouge, an extremist revolutionary group in Cambodia, which also had their fingers in the Pol Pot early on, but he kind of spearheaded that and everything came to a head in a way during the uh, civil war in Cambodia that led to their rise. How, like, all of that transpired, he tried to implement his, like, ethno-communist ideals really fast. Fun. And in a way, he ended up architecting a genocide so large that it results in what's eventually called the killing fields. So leaving a very bloody mark on the country. And kind of weird that him trying to implement ethno-communist ideals ended up in 
killing off so many of his own people. Like, it's very counterintuitive. We'll get to it later. We could argue, like, maybe he didn't try to intentionally do this, and it was just really, really bad design. I don't know. Hard to say. It's really hard to be like, how can you be that... (laughs) You know. <laughs> we'll get into it. We'll get yeah, into we'll, it. Yeah, we'll get into it. Well, today's sources come firstly from the article Cambodia from University of Minnesota's College of Liberal Arts Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies. And then we also have Pol Pot by History.com, which, fine website, terrible channel. <laughs> terrible TV series. Yeah. Yeah. We also have Democratic Kempuchea, the biography of Comrade Pol Pot who I didn't see an author noted, but this was actually a chronology of his communist activities during his power. I think it was somewhere like communist.org was like, we do not claim him. We did. <laughs> communist.org. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, initially we found that primary source as a link on marxist.com, but I don't know, maybe communist.org doesn't claim him, but marxist.org does. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> And then our last source is by David P. Chandler, Pol Pot, Brother Number One, A Political Biography of Pol Pot, which was pretty intense and long. (laughs) If anybody is wanting to read into this guy after, just don't touch the Wikipedia page. It's going to send you into a coma. Oh, it made me fall asleep like... Like four days in a row, you were like, I'm going to research, opens Wikipedia, passes out on the couch. The the book is fine. The book is fine. It's just the Wikipedia article just like feels like it's, it's like, twisting much. one way and then it's going another and then like it's trying to sew everything together. It's everything all at once. Yeah. In a it's bad a, way. It's a mess. So now that we've done our due diligence, let's get into the early life of Pol Pot. Might seem like kind of a weird name. It was actually I'd a- I'd say so. Yeah. Pol Pot? Poly Potet? It was actually a pseudonym short for Politique Potentielle. He was actually born, as mentioned, as Salas Sar on May 25th, 1925 or 1928, hard to say, to a family of farmers in the rural village of Prexbov, Cambodia. Interestingly enough, for a while there, he just went by Paul, and it was only eventually when he actually started taking over like Getting most of the Khmer Rouge that he actually added on the little, the, uh, the politic or the pot at the end. Potential. Yeah, it used to be just potential for, like, the longest time. And then he added on potential politic, mm. which is kind of, like, such, like, an Xbox 360 kind of <laughs> thing to do with your Bloody username. Bloody sovereign, potential politic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he went by many, many, many names, but I think yeah. Paul Pot is where he's his most infamous name. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to be referring to him as that for most of this episode. Now, despite living in a small village at first... Pot or Pol Pot was the son of an affluent family, which this story kind of changes. Sometimes it's a poor family, sometimes it's a rich family, but we can generally agree. It sounded that, like they were middle class ish. Yeah, it sounded like they were upper middle class, like you're like multimillionaires, maybe like even like low billionaire kind of <laughs> level. Theoretically, well, Cambodian standards. They had a huge, like, over 50 acres of uh, rice fields, and they were doing really well for themselves. Harvest was really good. They even had enough money to uh, basically hire servants. Hmm. So they had something like seven or eight servants. Don't quote me on the number. <laughs> so he grew up well, and also his father was in good with the king. So political ties, monetary ties, you have a lot going for you. He's Appar- basically an aristocrat. Yeah, yeah, kind of like Saad in a way. Apparently, yeah. the amount of rice paddy they had was actually 10 times more than the national average. So, you, you know, he's set, at least in his early life. Absolutely. In 1934, 
He ended up moving to the capital city of Cambodia, Phnom Penh, studying at a Buddhist monastery first, and then eventually going to a French Catholic primary school in Cambodia, where they described him as a bright student. So he's not having to work the rice patties off the bat. He's actually getting in good with a variety of different intellectuals. He's learning from the Buddhists and the Catholics, which I would say that's maybe not a good learning experience, but he he has a variety of people teaching him and access to a lot of resources off the bat. And this is going to be extremely important because basically it's this is kind of like a private school, I would say, in a way. It shows kind of the privilege of his family and whatnot. But also this school he's going to is with, during this time, Cambodia is technically a monarchy, but that monarchy is controlled by France. Yes. So all of like the little French diplomat kids are going here too. And so it looks really, really good because like you're whining and dining the people that are even over your monarch's head, like in terms of power or their kid's power. Basically putting his son in the best position and also his brother did the same thing. Man, it'd be really awkward, though, if those kids got into a fight with, a, like, a little tiny whiny French bitch, like, punched them in the face, like, Sacre bleu! Sacre bleu, daddy, I got hit! And it's like, oh boy, this is not gonna end well. But as far as the records show, Paul Pop was actually a decent kid. I mean, bright student, he didn't get into fights, he wasn't, like, off his rockers, he didn't wet the bed and murder small animals, you know, not the typical... Normal, evil yeah. stuff. <laughs> he, he sounded like a decent child. I mean... Well, I, I wouldn't call him bright. Right, I feel like he can be like the kid to skip class and go smoke cigarettes, <laughs> like in the back alley or something like that. Fair enough. Who knows? Maybe, maybe he even got kicked out for uh, smoking too many cigarettes. Apparently, he was fine. He would just show up, kind of do the grades, go home, not study at all. We all knew that kid who could just like go <laughs> right in on the coattails of your peers. Yeah, just go in, take the test, whatever, get out. He was one of those kids. He didn't really go to class. He couldn't quite get as competitive. I imagine it's hard also because he comes from like an ESL background, basically, with French. This is at his secondary school. So he's competing with all these things. Of course, he's not going to do as well academically because he's like learning it in French, completely foreign concepts uh, most of the time. And also, he's not exactly in the in-group. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So he's out back smoking his cigarettes or whatever, and he eventually doesn't do that well in secondary school. So he doesn't pass his test to go on to, uh, say, uh, university. So he's like, okay, well, I'm going to go into the trades. And I believe he goes to become like a welder or something like that. Something to that effect. And all these people here, they're like, France is like looking for someone. And he applies to like this scholarship. So, like, in 1949, Pol Pot got, like, gets this scholarship. That's a surprise. Yes, it's a, and it's very few candidates inside of Cambodia who got it. It was, like, only, like, he was only there with, like, maybe, like, five other people. five, yeah. And it was basically a scholarship that, like, gave him, like, the luxury of traveling to Paris and studying engineering. I believe probably (laughs) one of the polytechnic schools. Yeah, yeah. During his time in France, of course, because he's in engineering, he studied radio technology. But really, he focused his interest on something far more fascinating than engineering, because we all know engineers don't have any fun. Pol Pot got into Uh, communism. With this kind of smoking in like the back alley kind of behavior, it doesn't transfer as quite, say, the same way in his new school in Paris. His new school in Paris, he's now smoking with people kind of like, like Sartre or like these like kind of like French philosophy 
type people. Right. And uh, they're talking about kind of like Marxism and rebellion and whatnot. And his skipping engineering classes, which I totally understand. They're <laughs> awful. Engineering is the worst. It goes on forever. It feels like it. He's instead getting inundated with more communist ideals. Yeah. But at the same time, also feeling kind of a weird wall, I would think, because he's meeting all of these brilliant French educated intellectuals that are getting smart about revolution, but also seeing oh, these are the people that have been colonizing my country. It's actually said that he never really integrates that well into French society at all. He kind of just goes, like, briefly to class just to say he's there and keep his scholarship. (laughs) Then he goes and hangs out with the degenerates, and then he goes straight home and goes to sleep. Like, that's mostly what he does, and so he's just doing this over and over and over again. And I think this is really where he, like, kind of has his threshold of becoming an extremist or garnering a very, very extreme opinion, which it's taking something like maybe Marxism and like corrupting it almost in his mind to kind of fit the needs that he sees. Right. So Pol Pot began going even further into this and he became maybe someone who is just sitting in a cafe casually talking about Marx to someone who is actually participating in the underground activities. Yeah, he went from the cafe to a basement. Yeah, he went from the cafe to the basement. He He's organizing events. He's, like, trying to organize people, actually have, like, party meetings, stuff to this effect. And he becomes heavily involved around the 1950s. It's when he gets this most involvement. I would say even so much so that he fails his first engineering test or, like, the test of engineering to graduate and has to repeat an entire year of engineering at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's rough. Well, at this time, as mentioned, he's getting involved with communism, and he's focusing more of his efforts on philosophy, including the likes of Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, and your favorite Jean-Jacques Rousseau. (laughs) Now, he's kind of doing very badly in school and not really caring about it at all. So from 49 to 52, Paul Pout founds the Marxist-Leninist student group against French colonialists, and his communist leadings basically become his primary mentor. He is so fascinated by all of these works and with the thought of revolution that he's like, all right, I don't care about engineering. I don't care about radio tech. Let's go all in. This is what I'm focusing on. This is what I live for! Two caveats. One, I will say... Oh my gosh, this guy, I feel like, is in love with Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and I hate Jean-Jacques Rousseau so much with a fiery, burning passion. I can just feel like every time this guy, like, does an action, I can feel, like, like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, like, whispering in his ear. <laughs> like, it's horrible. Anyway, besides... Does Paul Pot have a Rousseau philosophy hat on? I think so. <laughs> I think he's getting transmissions from wherever <laughs> Rousseau is. The other caveat is, he's like, okay... He's seeing all of these ideals. He's like, I can take this back to my country. My country probably needs it right now. It's utter chaos there. We'll discuss the state of Cambodia with all of its invading neighbors and internal strifes. But it's not doing too hot, we'll say. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really fit into French culture that well. But he has these ideas of revolution and how maybe he could do it correctly. Unlike, say, there was like some losses for Mao or Stalin like who didn't get the complete revolution uh, they wanted, or maybe the ones that they wanted, but not the perfect ones that Pol Pot envisioned. Do revolutions ever go perfectly, though? No. (laughs) 
And also, secondly, he failed his engineering exam for the final time and lost his scholarship. So that might have also been a contributing factor for him going home. (laughs) Just a thought. Yeah. (laughs) Just probably because he's like, oh, shit, I ran out of money. I can't go to my communist party in the basement. I'll make my own communist party in the basement of Cambodia. Yeah, wouldn't that be awkward? Paul Paul, did you sleep at our meeting spot again? Yeah. Marie. <laughs> so as mentioned in January of 1953, Pol Pot returns home to Cambodia, kind of derelict because he lost his scholarship, but also I think with a spring in his step because of thoughts of revolution. And that's where he really gets his like revelation because he goes to like a part of Cambodia where he meets with the Vietnam and they kind of like integrate him into like kind of like this gorilla encampment, you could yeah. say. And he was, this is kind of a weird thing, but the Vietnamese can be, just as well as Cambodians can be right back, were racist to the Cambodians. And so they were trying to like go like, hey, uh, we're not going to teach you about like revolution. We're going to basically like be like, hey, go take out the shit bucket. You know, they weren't helping with the fight. And so they're doing all this crap work for the Vietnam. And he, like, Pol Pot really wanted to connect with the Viet Cong and whatnot during this time because they had international backing from Soviet Russia. And so they were recognized as, like, an overthrow that was officially recognized. as like, oh, maybe I can do that with Cambodia. Let me get in with uh, the Vietnamese communist here. And we and can this be was, all communist buddies together. And this was with the crux to fight the French colonization. Correct. This was still before the whole situation was handed over to the United States. So he was basically working with them and it was getting like, like really shitty. Like it was just like horrible. I would say like, uh, they got treated as like, I guess second class and like the conditions weren't even great then. According to the communist ledgers from 1953 to 1954, Pol Pot served as a fighter, quote, charged with the task of cooking and production works, unquote. I think that's probably putting it lightly. Yeah. And when Cambodia officially gained independence from France in like late 1954, also like the war had kind of died down a little bit. The guerrilla group retreated back to uh, Vietnam Mm -hmm. as France was kind of like pulling out of the region at the time. And they just kind of left them there without like helping them at all. With the, oh, sweet bye. Yeah. They're like, oh, sweet bye. And so he was like, okay, fine. I don't know if he was actually a part of the Khmer Rouge at this point. I don't think yet. I don't think so. But he had a taste of what it was like working with a revolutionary group, even if he was treated like shit and did the shit work. He still felt like he was part of something greater, I would imagine. I would think so. And he took his men and he's like, okay, fine. We can't do this violently. Like, we can't do this how Russia went and whatnot. We have to do this through an electoral kind of system. He got this, like, idea in his head. It's like, Okay, we're going to go through the entire system in order to, like, overthrow the government. And I would say it's kind of, like, Hitler-esque of, like, oh, let's go through, like, the Senate and the courts in order to, like... Let's play by the rules, but get in power with our own party through these rules. Exactly. So after Cambodia gained independence from France, Pol Pot was essentially reborn. After all this time, he was going against the colonizers of France that kind of drove his inspiration for communism, and it was now a clean slate. His country was no longer being colonized, 
and it was time for a change. So he joined a proto-communist Khmer's People Revolutionary Party, the KPRP, which was established with support from North Vietnam to basically ensure that Cambodia remained independent. Ironically, as a part of the KPRP, he was actually doing some teaching. We'll find out why that's ironic in no a little bit. No longer shoveling shit and cooking and... Yeah, no more filling pots for other communists, I suppose, for now. So he was teaching. I mean, obviously, he's like, he failed engineering school, but I mean, he still went to engineering school in like Paris, France. They're like, oh, great. You're going to be a teacher. You're hired. Yeah, you're hired. He actually met his wife during this time, and he was just kind of like living a quiet life except for in the background where he was starting to get the motions of going through that electoral system. He's kind of setting up the dominoes at this point. Yeah, he's staying after class. He's like, hey, come to my, like, communist thing. Like, so he's teaching, like, history, geography, and, like, French literature. So with all of those things, he can be like, hey, come on, you know communism's kind of cool, right? (laughs) Hello, fellow youths. Hello, fellow youths. And so he was going through this while... The country of Cambodia was in complete chaos. And I think at this point, he's just kind of laying the seeds, especially as he's teaching in Phnom Penh. And I think what gives him a crazy shock is kind of what he sees in Phnom Penh, which he didn't see on the rice fields that he grew up in at home or some of the countryside, especially not when he was working with uh, the Vietnamese in the early guerrilla days. He saw like not the kind of wealth disparity that was happening in Cambodia's only city at the you time. You would think he would have seen something like that when he studied in Paris, though. But to be Not fair- Not the disparity, like the complete disparity between like the countryside and the city, though. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. Like, okay. I, I guess uh, you would think that he would have seen the difference of city living compared to his countryside rural living when he moved to Paris. Ah, uh, yeah. But I guess maybe it was like, oh, this is a completely different culture. It doesn't matter. But actually, when he's in his hometown in the capital city seeing that disparity, it really reinforced more. I think so. I think you can kind of tell that he's like a little bit depressed at this point. But I still think he's just like a tiger that's holding back, kind of biding his time. And I think he still believes in this kind of communist revolution. But it's almost like this is his time undercover, studying the enemy, teaching at their schools, and also kind of cultivating a communist party. In the yeah, in a way, building his army by teaching the students. I would say so. In a way, this kind of leads to the architecture for his uh, rise to power, I would say. He combined his ideals, obviously, from the literary mentors of Stalin and Mao, and of course Rousseau, with a return focus on agrarian society. Basically, in an undercutting of his studies, he was teaching and reinforcing the idea that there should be a disdain for industrialization, and he wanted to gather more support for the rural Cambodians of which he grew up, and also the North Vietnamese and Chinese peoples. And we can eventually see that he kind of pulls like a reverse Stalin, <laughs> kind of, but like kind of within Mao's ideology, but then with Jean-Jacques Rousseau just stuck right there in the middle. Oh my gosh, it's Pulling the, the strings at every bit. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway... <laughs> kind of championed this Cambodian sovereignty in the face of Vietnamese aggression because Vietnam was getting a little bit 
punchy, I would say. They were <laughs> struggling with a tiny problem, such as, like, the United States. Oh, that's a uh, tiny problem. <laughs> just a tiny problem. Anyway, he kind of acted as, like, a, like a bulwark against, like, uh, the Soviet influence in the Southeast Asian region. For the next four years, between 1954 and 1960, Pol Pot became responsible for revolutionary activity in Phnom Penh. He had spread the seeds, basically, and now the dominoes were lined and the first one was about to fall. He started allocating work for people under his tutelage towards the countryside in promotion of this agrarian society, basically like, we need to rebuild from the ground up, we need to get rid of distraction, we need to focus on our agriculture and returning to the earth in a way. So he started sending groups of students, intellectuals, laborers, monks, and radicalists, to name a few. He basically sent everyone, go in the farms, start from scratch. This is where we need to learn from. And we'll obviously get into this much later. I think towards the end, I kind of like have an idea of how I'd break down his architecture and see where he was going and why he was going that way. However, we're just going to kind of breeze past that for now to get, kind get an overview, just an overview. So I would say now he's part of the Khmer Rouge, like, yeah. and he's like leading it basically. And I bet this is probably around the time he takes on the pot. So he's no longer just Paul; he's now Pol Pot, mm-hmm. and that's just a nickname. I mean, kind of like how Khmer Rouge has a mixture of like Khmer, which is of like the Cambodian people, and then like Rouge, which is just Communism. French red. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, but yeah, well, communism. it is the French yeah. word for red, but the red aspect of communism. Exactly. And so he basically wanted to make this Khmer Rouge a one-party state, similar to how Mao designed it in China. Mm. So very similar in that, except he... It kind of leads to, like, extreme peasantry and xenophobia, because he's also trying to do this a lot faster than, like, Mao did his kind of cultural revolution and everything. We'll get to that, I guess, a little bit later. But, yeah, he basically just wanted everyone to go back to being farmers. Yeah, start from scratch. We're starting a new Minecraft server, guys. Everyone's a farmer. We need the potato, or the rice in this case. And he basically wanted everyone to be of the same culture so that they could take care of, like, their nation only. Specifically, Khmer, which is, like, when the Khmer Rouge, there used to be a Khmer empire from around that region. And so all of the descendants from that, he is trying to get into, like, like restore the Khmer glory. To the ethnostate kind of idea. But within communism. So it has, like, that ethnic kind of um, yeah. appeal to it. So that's where it kind of like the xenophobia comes in is like they only want Chimera people and they only want Chimera communist. Right. Specifically. Nothing else, just that specifically. And then from there, uh, it was believed once again that like maybe like this empire would rise, but more of within equal standing and this intellectual kind of framework underpinning it. Yeah. Pol Pot's idea of getting everyone to communism was starting as farmers first, which is kind of weird this is how we're equal we're all doing the farming work i don't care if you're a doctor i don't care if you know better than us in this realm we're all plowing the fields the end yeah and i think a lot of it stemmed from like the fear like medicine for example uh he believed that the cambodian people should create their own version of medicine like because like the medicine that was currently representative was western medicine and it was like a chain that was keeping the cambodian people down like 
the information was keeping them from like communism and whatnot. The information was dividing people rather than uniting them. And also it wasn't Chimer specifically. Mm-hmm. And they felt like maybe the witch doctor should be relied upon more. <laughs> the, the the local shaman. I, I think they felt no doctor should be relied upon, but trust well, your government. They wanted natural medicine, which was of the, I guess, Eastern tradition. You wouldn't see, you would see things like doctors probably not being included in this plan they would probably need to change themselves or go plow the field well yeah that's how they were included in the plan not Mm -hmm. that they were still doctors anymore you're going to square one with everyone else yeah basically brainwashing them and trying to keep everyone on a equal playing field initially and then from which there they would from being uh farmers when they needed medicine they would create their own version of medicine after all of the agrarian stuff had been finally taken care of to where Cambodia was self-sufficient, which was a very big part of Pol Pot's architecture was uh, self-sufficiency, kind of like how uh, Albania did it. He was also modeling it a little bit off of Albania's communist revolution mm. at the time. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to make Cambodia very like self-sufficient so that they don't need any like outside influences. That was the plan. It went horribly. We also know that he was the one that should take responsibility for most of this. I think most of this was his architecture. Mm-hmm. And we can especially like see this coming to fruition when he was charged with heading the committee to establish power as the Communist Party of Kampuchea. Yeah, which was Cambodia. So uh, when he's starting the architecture, he wasn't in full power, but he was there pulling a lot of the strings, but eventually he gets charged with handling the Communist Party. So people are saying, oh, you're doing some good shit, you are now the head of this. And as the 60s rolled around, he was eventually elected a member of the Central and Standing Committee of the Communist Party, and then later becoming Deputy Secretary the following year, and eventually Secretary in 1963. So he has planted the seeds. He is not quite the face yet, but he is slowly and steadily working his way through this newly established party that he basically set up, and as the dominoes start to fall, he rises in the ranks towards becoming head. He has a very interesting way of navigating politics that we'll get into, but he's actually pretty nimble with mm-hmm. his politics. He's really good at maneuvering himself into certain positions. And not in a, an overt way either. He's following the rules and being subtle about it while gaining more and more control as things go along. He's like Robert Walpole's like <laughs> impulsive brother in like the terms of um, like strategic nimbleness, I would say. So he's like... If Walpole is really strategic and able to uh, weave everything together very silently and like well to do and puts himself well in a good position of power, then I'd say that Pol Pot is exactly like that, except much louder because his actions fair, are fair. very, very, very loud. Yeah, and he's you kind of impulsive. You and don't doesn't... see the economic collapse until it's like right in front of your face. People go, "Oh yeah, we need a revolution. Communism sounds good." Then you read into it and you go, "We're all working the rice field." Yeah, it sounds wasn't... sus. I mean, he did fail engineering school for a reason. <laughs> As his time in this, uh, in the Communist Party from like 63 to 67, Pol Pot kind of established a bunch of revolutionary bases, kind of like base camps, being like, hey, Cambodians, all of your base belong to us. <laughs> and then they used like organized forces and guerrilla tactics to kind of terrorize the countryside and starting some peasant revolutions and like basically using violence as a key controlling factor 
I would say it's actually pretty similar to how uh, the Taliban actually mm. controls a lot of Afghanistan. Usually when they come to power because they're in the countryside or in the mountains, they're using kind of these guerrilla tactics until they can kind of get in control of the government, right. especially with like the peasant uprising. And if you're and, starting bases, people who already feel disenfranchised and are, they're looking for anything better, even if they don't know that this is going to make things worse. I would say so. So, like, that's, like, one parallel I could say, like, to the modern world of, you know, they're kind of hard to root out because they're in the middle of the country. Like, in Cambodia, there's going to be, like, dense forests. I would also say Pol Pot kind of knew his starting base better because he grew up in the rural area. No, he wasn't a peasant, but he owned the farms and he had the workers, so he knows how they think and how to manipulate them on that front. Soon after... Pol Pot was promoted to be secretary of the northeastern zone of Cambodia, where he started his first big reign of violence leading a guerrilla war against counter-revolutionaries, including U.S. imperialists. So we've already mentioned the U.S. kind of has their fingers in this pot, but mostly Vietnam, but they're skirting the borders. So the U.S. and people who don't like communism and don't like the current government in newly established Cambodia are fighting against Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, but the Khmer Rouge is doing well. Things are getting pretty messy in Cambodia around this time. A lot of Vietnam, uh, who's been a historical rival for them because of invasions of territories, suddenly finds themselves in a, like, with Khmer Rouge, they're more of an alliance with them because they're both now communists, so they have that front to fight on even though they have always invaded each other. Anyway, long story short, Vietnam is being currently bombed to hell yeah. by the United States. Good old Uncle Sam, go and shell the shit out of your place. And a lot of the Vietnamese or the Viet Cong are fleeing inside the Cambodian border mm-hmm. to kind of hide out. We can also kind of see, again, with the uh, Taliban reference of um, the, the Taliban sometimes going into uh, Pakistan in order to like hide mm-hmm. like such as Osama bin Laden being found in Pakistan where the United States doesn't have as much jurisdiction mm-hmm. to act power during that time so it's interesting the uh the Viet Cong are trying to go into Cambodia to basically not get their shit ruined <laughs> but then the United States is all like well Cambodia is kind of a weak state anyway and it's being kind of loosened its grip on France it's not gonna make France mad if we go ahead and try to keep bombing the uh, Vietnamese that we're fighting, even though it's in Cambodia. Yeah, Cambodia is kind of seen as an ends to a mean. They're very, as a country, it's disregarded. The U.S. goes, yeah, yeah, we can just go in there. It's fine. Our war is more important than this country. And with that, with fighting with the Vietnamese, fighting with the bombs and whatnot, economics aren't great, an unstable government, and eventually a civil war that will happen. But during this entire time... Mothers and fathers are getting killed all over the place. And a lot of the Khmer Rouge find themselves in the Khmer Rouge as children. Oh. And the Khmer Rouge will eventually take these children and craft them into soldiers that yeah. are entirely obedient to the Khmer Rouge. Yeah, if you're an orphan and you're lost in the Cambodian jungle, you see a bunch of these big strong men that go hey little child come join us we'll feed you we'll take care of you all you got to do is carry this gun it's yep. how they get you communism sounds good to me if it means i can eat some rice yeah exactly so 
Pol Pot utilizes this conscription of child soldiers to fight his battles, essentially. As the dominoes are starting to fall, his power is continuing to grow, and he bolsters his numbers by manipulating the weak. I guess that's how he kind of got the ball rolling. I mean, he really went after the weak and then slowly moved his way up to the strong. We've already talked about how he manipulated peasants, but then also gathering numbers with children. Yeah, he's not trying to really fight his intellectual equals, I would say. He's definitely going for the more... The masses. The masses, the more, like, grugwant food first, and then rolling it up to maybe, like, someone that can play on his political level, such as, eventually, maybe the king. Mm, Yeah. He's definitely going after the weak and trying to use their numbers to gain momentum. Right. So I guess we've touched on it a little bit, but we can get further and deep with the state of Cambodia. How about? Yeah, because everything gets kind of confusing. There's a lot going on here in Cambodia. You have Soviet influence. You have American influence. You have Vietnamese influence. You have the Khmer Rouge. You have another, uh, like, what, two other parties that we're going to get into? Yeah. I would say... Everyone's warring for power in this state of the world, and it gets super messy. I mean, in March of 1970, Cambodia was engaged in this huge civil war because of all of the different factors at play. At the time, things were going bad with Vietnam, so the king was kind of, I guess, persuaded to go talk to, like, the Soviet Union, kind of tell them what's up, be like, hey, can you ask Vietnam to stop, like, invading <laughs> our shit? Yeah, we keep getting bombed by the U.S. As he does that, there is kind of a vote of no confidence, especially since earlier the king had actually, it had become a democratic republic. Ish. Ish. But then the king put all of his political opponents inside of prison and so uh he won the election pretty soundly and surely sounds legit yeah so he kind of did the corrupting factor behind the bastards actually has an entire few episodes on uh this king guy king Uh, shianuk yeah king shianuk and it's really good if you want to go over and listen to them but after this one after this one this is the better podcast anyway so he basically kind of forces himself back into power as like kind of a king after france leaves so he gets tricked, go talk to the Soviet Union, trying to get things to stop, but he gets tricked by his general. His general then institutes a military coup yeah. since he thinks that the uh, the election was rigged. And So basically, counter, counter-revolutionary general Lon Nol installs this coup. As the prince is out, he's been distracted. Oh, let's try and assert our authority as the government now that the prince is gone. Yeah, now that the king or prince is gone, he's in full control of the government. He's like, okay, I'm going to, like, rule this, make sure that all of our military stuff is done, all of our, like, you know, we have all of our people to feed, and um, after that we can return it to the nice democratic place that it was always supposed to be. Not so fast, though. Yes, not so fast. The prince returns, and of course, he doesn't like what's going on in the country. He doesn't like how General Noel overthrew him, essentially, so he allies with the Khmer Rouge, and the U.S. backs Null. Because, of course, they back Null, because he's supposed to be the one that's going to return, like, the fair election. Right. Whereas the Khmer Rouge, kind of allying with the monarchy, are promoting nationalism and government loyalty, but also not glossing over the fact that the monarchy itself is corrupt and ineffective. People are still starving and not happy with the monarchy, so it's very split in terms of the country. I would say so, and, it, like, there's also evidence because, like, no wonder the U.S. would back the other guy because 
the king just came back from the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And I think that what really overshadows a lot of this and what why this doesn't get talked about a lot is because of what's basically happening during the Cold War. It just kind of overshadows it. And, like, Cambodia just gets controlled yeah. entirely by all the, the factors and situations of these two great powers fighting. And, it, like, a lot of this gets sweeped under the rug. Yeah. Which is really unfortunate, because, like, during this time, it, it seems like these people just really needed help. Uh, <laughs> income inequality was, like, a huge problem. Cambodians kind of like Pol Pot, like, living in, uh, like, urban areas, which I wouldn't even say there's urban areas. There's, like, an urban area. Yeah, the capital, basically. Yeah, which is Phnom Penh. And he was living comfortably, I would say. Like, he didn't have to, like, do rice fields, like, all day for, like, sun up, sundown. Yeah. He's sitting in his mansion drinking tea, and he's like, y'all deal with the rice patties. I well, deal I don't with think y'all. he's quite there yet, because he's still in his teaching position. Mm. Okay, maybe that's his sentiment, then. Basically, the Vietnam War is happening, causing the countryside to be bombed, food stores to go loose. Yeah, you already mentioned Viet Cong are taking sanctuary in Cambodia. But then the South Vietnamese and U.S. are storming Cambodia, going, ah, oh, fuck your country, we're fighting a bigger war. So a bunch of, like, revolutionary groups kind of formed all around. It's basically anarchy during the Civil <laughs> War. As is often to happen with newly forming countries. There's just, like, warlords over here, over there. Everyone's kind of... Vying for power. Yes. All these revolutionary groups kind of come together, but the primary group that's revolutionary is the Khmer Rouge. And yeah. this is from all of the preparation, I think, that Pol Pot's been doing in the background as one of its leaders exactly and it's like setting up all the bases setting up the tanks securing everything just waiting for that one moment of weakness yeah moment of weakness also the opportunity and luck aspect people often attribute to people who have success from 1970 to 1975 Pol Pot continued setting up his dominoes and getting everything perfectly in place for that opportunity he was once again appointed secretary of the committee in 71 and then later chairman of the military committee and eventually chairman of the command committee, where he had full authority to execute and organize the military fronts across the country. Yeah, and I think this is where things start getting really serious. We can really oh, yeah. see him starting to throw around his weight now. He no longer has to wait. He's made all the preparations. He's He's been like dreaming about this for years. Now is the time. To kind of act. He's no longer a major secretary. He controls the power. He controls the fist of this group. By 1973, he has three quarters of Cambodia on his side. <laughs> he still hasn't attacked the capital. Remember, he's going through the countryside, slowly assimilating Recruit people. Recruit the peasants and the children. Teach them, like, our way of life, or hand them a gun and tell them, you know, it's better to come along with us. Do it or die. And it's at this time, with all the chaos going on, because there's not only a civil war, so there's, like, the normal family, and a no, which I think eventually gets forced out. I, I don't quite remember what happens to him. Anyway, long story short, he, like, exits the picture. Right. But during this whole civil war, while both the king and the general were fighting, they didn't see that the Khmer Rouge had basically already consumed most of the country like an infection no one expects the spanish inquisition or coronavirus or the khmer rouge so the king finally done with like the civil war ish kind of stuff gets tricked out to go visit the soviet union again 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 wow and that's when uh pol pot's forces 
began to kind of converge Uh on the Capitol. The opportunity is now. Take it. Exactly. Which I believe, like, right in the middle of, the king comes back, and we'll talk about... (laughs) He's like, oh, shit. He's like, oh, shit. (laughs) I I always return to my country when things are horrible. Yeah. I always leave my country when things are horrible, too. Hmm, maybe I'm the problem. (laughs) Hey, it's me. I'm the problem. (laughs) They, They storm the capital. They basically, like, cut all the supply lines. They close down every single airport in the entire country on one day. Um, they, Damn, that's all, fast. Yep, all communications out uh, to the outside world, gone. Then they overtake the military outpost around the capital, and then they immediately go into the capital. And they go basically into the palace, and the king's there by that point. And they so kindly ask for his assistance. Please, sir, you've backed us in the past. I'm, I know that we snuck up on you while you were out of the country, and oops, you're here now, but... We got you. We're overthrowing the capital for you. Exactly. So their plan is to actually keep this guy in power, Shianuk. What, as like a puppet? As a puppet. Mm. Since they're about to go through what they call a purge, they want basically him to take the credit. Ah, but also I would imagine him to kind of save face with the Soviet Union and potentially people like the U.S. or Vietnam, like... If he is the puppet, he is also the scapegoat, also the negotiating factor. I would say so. He's like absolutely a token in this. This is basically in 1975 when Pol Pot comes to full power. And basically the king, who is technically like prime minister or something at this point, but he's basically the king, will be in a gilded prison during Pol Pot's entire reign. So he'll be in the palace. He'll be doing normal palace stuff. Living a life of luxury. But if he steps out one step, you know, boom, bang, bullet in the head. head. Yeah. So he wants they say to... we're helping you, but then they go, surprise, bitch, you're locked in your house. You're under house arrest now. We own the country. That's exactly what happened. Mm. And they were planning on using him, but he actually foiled their plans because he went to go make an announcement that he was basically using the Chimera Rouge as like the de facto like military force, I guess you could say. Pobalt would kind of be in charge of that. And then he would be like the puppet. But instead... He kind of surprised everyone by stepping down. And then Paul Paul was like, what the f- What's going on? What's going on? There goes our trump card. Yeah. And so basically he takes to the radio inside of the palace and he announces to all the populace, like, don't panic. This is like a new country. This is like the Chimera Rouge. And a very gentle, normal, monotone voice. And from that radio broadcast on, he is in power of all of Cambodia. I guess he used his poor education as a radio tech to his advantage. <laughs> I would say so. I would say so. Well, it's kind of hard to follow because there's so many different turns of events. There's so much stuff that happens. It's like playing 5D chess, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely insane. I think Nall steps down, like runs away. Gets, I, I forget what happens to him, but it's just insane because it's like one coup after another coup after another coup. And then like you have all of your different backers. Exactly. Now that the Khmer Rouge under Pol Pot was finally in power, they could put all of the plans into place. They began to radically reorganize society with the focus on agrarianism, as inspired by Stalin, but kind of to the opposite effect? I would say the entire opposite effect. (laughs) Whereas Stalin basically starved his people to industrialize faster, this was the opposite way around. It was in de-industrialization in order to get people to be farmers faster and therefore get food faster. Mm. 
for the rest of the country. But it turns out that some people are doctors for a reason. Some people are teachers for a reason. Right. It's like making a Minecraft trading hall and putting all of your villagers as farmers. You're not going to be able to get your diamond armor. You're not going to be able to get your potions. If everyone's a farmer and you punish them for doing anything else, you got carrots and potatoes or rice. The end. If you want to have, like, I don't know, like something like a Fletcher, that would be in these, like, 2.5 million residents that were taken from the capital. I think actually this is when like the president is coming back in. The timelines are all kind of wonky, so I think the whole president thing comes in slightly after this, but it still occurs. Anyway, Pol Pot orders that 2.5 million residents of Phnom Penh were taken and forced into the countryside. So they are like completely removed from the city and they were told to work as farmers in order to rebuild society by just like digging canals and tending to crops with sometimes their bosses not even knowing how to like do the farm work themselves <laughs> because no one knew because like all the books had been like kind of like burned yeah. on and all the institutions. Yeah, Pol Pot used this as a tactic to re-educate the populace but when you're removing all of your educational resources, people are just going to either die or resent you or do their jobs horribly. I would also say, like, this happens so fast. Yes, it this, was very abrupt. This happens, like, within a week. Everyone in Phnom Penh who is able to get out or not identified in the purge that is to come is basically forcibly removed within just a few days. It's yes. like taking, like, all of New York City and moving it into New Jersey within, like, a week. Yeah. As a result of this migration, all professional fields of study, including medicine, were deemed illegal, leading to further tragedy that would occur. And of course, the economy fell to absolute shit because you didn't have any- Oh, it didn't go great? It didn't rebuild? It didn't re-industrialize? No, I mean, not in time, at least. I mean, on top of this, they're not contacting the outside world, so they only have their internal economy to worry about because they're not receiving any foreign help mm. like at this time which could be helpful to the people no 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 so their economy it takes internally uh money essentially becomes worthless so much so that they're all like wait a second why do we use this money thing let's just stop using money and therefore money becomes illegal cuz it's identified as a corrupting factor so basically there was no measurement system of work everyone would just work from sunup to sundown no matter who you were because like money is not a thing to basically evaluate units of said work everyone was kind of forced to be together at all times basically to make sure that everyone became the same identity and now all of the ground everything inside of cambodia belonged to the state so if you were caught eating rice that was maybe not distributed to you or a berry Technically, you were stealing from the state. Right. Even foraging was criminalized. And obviously, because there is no economy to um, basically industrialize or to help coordinate things, and there was kind of like this strictness on food without the knowledge of how to grow such food, basically, the countryside would fall into starvation and illness very, very, very quickly. Exactly. And this was probably exacerbated by Pol Pot thinking that they would have so much excess food from so many more farmers entering the workforce that they actually started storing the rice. 
So they got very, very little rice because they're expecting a population boom in which they would have to use their like stored rice for that period of time. Which, of course, didn't happen because if you're worked to the bone and you're barely eating, you have malnutrition to the point that you can't even have kids if you wanted to. As mentioned in the Dead Kennedy song, Holiday in Cambodia, while you'll work harder with a gun in your back for a bowl of rice a day, slave for soldiers till you starve, then your head is skewered on a stake. We'll get to it, but the Chimera Rouge has a very particular obsession with killing people via the head. <laughs> it's pretty brutal, especially from some of the skulls that you can see nowadays. Completely, like, holes punched all through them. Mm-hmm. In fact, like, the Chimera Rouge kind of... But more than starving to death, I would say, is... But more than just assassination, I would say a lot more victims probably came to the Chimera Rouge's architecture of the situations that would help propagate the starvation. Such as, they create these like little labor brigades, and those labor brigades were then assigned by like groups depending on age and gender and this basically split up a lot of Cambodia especially with all the people from uh, Phnom Penh uh, being forcibly evacuated and then separating them in this manner it was mostly off of ethnic lines Mm -hmm. as well and it basically made every part of the country into kind of like this prison cordoned off like sectioned kind of structure yeah everyone's isolated together in a weird way everyone's in a different wing of the prison after they've been kind of selected in like this manner the Khmer Rouge also as you mentioned very much segmented against of not only ethnicity who supported them who was racially like them but also in terms of religion and ideology Christian Buddhist and other religious and ethnic minorities were targeted for oppression kind of like the Uyghur Muslims in China today, the Cham Muslim group in Cambodia was one of the most affected groups. According to the University of Minnesota, as many as 500,000 people or 70% of the total Cham population were exterminated as part of this reallocation, reintegration, reeducation program under Pol Pot. I'd also say one of the more interesting things that I still can't go over it. We've mentioned kind of how professions would eventually be targeted, especially like teachers, doctors, lawyers. Yeah, can't be an intellectual if you're a farmer now. Like the intellectuals are literally being hunted down and like removed because it's like dangerous to a specific ideology. I mean, you have book burnings nowadays still. That is true. That is true. Or at least book removal. I don't think it's quite to the same level no, that no, was going. No, no, for sure, for sure. But. I mean, this ideology got so extreme that, like, if you had glasses on, you were assumed to come from something, like, something that's, like, more well-off or um, basically being in the professions, such as mm-hmm. teaching. And so that could be enough to get you sent to uh, an internment camp or an interrogation center, a security Mm -hmm. center, I guess you could say. 
there's actually an account, if I remember correctly, where the glasses thing happened with like this doctor and basically he had to throw away his glasses and he's like almost completely blind and he was sent to a labor camp um, in which he was there with his wife and uh, she was pregnant and basically they were working the fields and then she started to give birth and his specialty was actually in like, you know, delivery, but he couldn't help at all because it would give away that he might have been in the profession show before. that he was an intellectual and therefore could be killed. Right. Not only would his wife and um, unborn child be killed, but he would probably also be killed. So mm-hmm. he couldn't like literally do anything at the time. He just had to like sit there and labor and watch because there was that much fear spread throughout the culture on like hunting down intellectuals, which right. is kind of insane. And unfortunately, too, because he could not help without dying, his wife and kid actually died during yeah. the labor process. But he was able to survive. Also, I think it would be just hard being a doctor and being surrounded by so many people with, like, malnutrition. Like Yeah, who I want to help everyone. I wouldn't know who to help first. I can't help anyone or else I die. Yep. Anyone who broke the rules, including trying to help people with their previous knowledge, like doctors, or those who hid rations, or foraged, or complained, were sent to the infamous S-21 Detention Center, which was a former high school that was converted into basically a torture camp. I would say these are just tiny little concentration camps that go and are kind of scattered Mm -hmm. throughout the entire region. Probably to strike fear amongst the people, but also to make people submit to the Khmer Rouge as well. So I think in this democratic republic that Pol Pot actually has his event horizon being in control of it. This is where we get the infamous killing fields, which is a collection of kind of these mass graves that are like sprinkled throughout the country, but mostly concentrated in one region. Mm -hmm. So like there is just one mass grave where over a million victims are buried. Yeah. I think the effect of the, of the Cambodian genocide under Pol Pot is most notable with these fields. And a lot of them had to do with starvation, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of it ha- actually had to do with the detention camps that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. There's actually 189 of those detention camps, with the S-21 being the most infamous one to be cited, as it was originally a high school and then became a prison. Right. And things were divided ethnically in these things. So if you were an intellectual or maybe uh, you were Vietnamese, you would be sent to these camps in order to be given obedience total silence inside of the prison camp um like soldiers would not like speak or you would get beaten uh often you were like beaten with sticks whatnot um sometimes in order to get you to stay they would have you confess sometimes write fake confessions of course to uh, try to implicate like anyone else who might have been working with you or anything like that and to get these types of confessions they would do anything from waterboarding to uh, putting electrodes between your ears and then sending like sending like high voltage shocks 
you know, typical torture methods that are still used today. I would assume stuff that uh, Cameron has used was used in these facilities. I would think so, except it was, it's like even crazier with the amount of obedience that was necessary. It was just insane. Yeah. As part of the Khmer Rouge, anyone in the populace was required to be extremely obedient and that they could not do any activities alone either. Even eating anything off the land, as we mentioned, was a crime because that belonged to the state. You could not eat by yourself. You could not exist by yourself. And failure to meet these requirements would lead to either immediate execution, you know, shot in the head, with the forced digging of your own grave, or being sent to such an interrogation center. And I think one of the most horrifying things to think about is, during all of this, Pol Pot is in what's called uh, the Silver Pagoda. And it's like this really ornamental, tiny house. And he himself is really silent, really gentle, just a calm, peaceful man. Drinking his tea. Smiling as ever. And then you come in to be some, like, get some orders and be like, oh, yes, that would be lovely. Now I want you to go send all of them to the camp or to the detention center. Go and massacre this group of people that are against us. And also, you have to remember, the Silver Pagoda is in a city that's been entirely abandoned. Oh, so just like war-trodden, empty buildings, and then there's this one nice little place that the ruler lives. Who speaks in a gentle, calm voice as he's genociding <laughs> all of these people. Sounds like something you'd see in a video game. Yeah, it sounds like a, like a really interesting hellscape. I mean, in these killing fields... They even had, like, they, children were not exempt from yeah, this treatment. Yeah, yeah. They would also be, like, even, like, with the glasses, oh, you're an intellectual kid, let me, like, you know. Die. Like, yeah, die. Or if you were, like, Vietnamese or something like that, like, they explicitly say you committed a crime, but like, oh, well, you just don't have um, communist ideology, so we're going to have to kill you, even though it was mostly just an excuse to wipe off, like, uh, someone who's basically not Chimer. Yeah. Or not useful to them at that time. And so, like, these children would often, like, be, like, beaten to death. In fact, there is, in Detention Center 21, or S21, there is the killing tree, in which they would grab children by the ankles and then swing them into the tree over and over and over again until their bodies were basically lifeless, and then they could throw it into maybe one of the mass graves or the killing fields. And that was just one of, like, the most common method. Obviously, there's stomping and also, like, drowning. Of course. There were many other mass graves aside from the killing fields, as we mentioned. Cambodia was basically littered with, basically, body deposition sites full of the lost souls of Cambodian people who starved, fell to illness, or went against the regime's will. The most brutal thing about it is while you're either laboring in the fields all day or you're in a detention center, even when you can like perhaps look forward to death, but it's always going to be slow because they thought that if you wasted a bullet, the soldiers would be like, you know, uh, reprimanded for like using a bullet. It was thought it was a waste. You know, they yeah, have no so economy. Let's get need... creative and bash babies against trees. 
Exactly. So if you like, I mean, that's the only thing you have to look forward to is like you either get beaten, you get drowned, or even in some cases they just set you on fire. They just emulate like you or maybe like an entire like cell of like people in it. And like oftentimes they would like if they had to get the job done fast, they would just go straight for machetes, right? And so just wipe out entire like towns. Brutal massacres of the populace because they didn't meet some arbitrary standpoint set by the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. Like even there, like there's like ridiculous ones. Like uh, there's a group of people sent to a detention center because they were told to plant rice on a field. And the field was actually supposed to be an industrial section, and so it was just concrete. So they're told to farm concrete. <laughs> they're told to farm rice on car, like on concrete. And you're like, sorry, I can't do this. It's fucking concrete. And they don't have you a jackhammer. Massacred. Like, yeah, and because then, you're being disobedient. Exactly, and they knew that that job was probably impossible for you in the first place, which yeah. is where like kind of like the like how they would justify their uh, ethnic part of the cleansing or the purge instead of just trying to get rid of communists or traitors um that's how they would eventually get sorted out inside of this architecture i think we've already touched on it earlier but as you've mentioned rice was the primary driving factor for the population but it was also kept in storage for the population growth so not only were people being tortured and abused but also of course being starved by their own government you work and slave for a bowl of rice a day. Yeah, they. Uh, there's some accounts of them saying that uh, they'd be so happy when they found um, one of their fellow prisoners, or not prisoners, one of their fellow, uh, fellow laborers' bodies out in the field because they could potentially eat it real fast, mm-hmm. um, which If you also, didn't get caught. If you didn't get caught, you could eat real fast and actually get something of sustenance. So cannibalism was like widely practiced, also right. like crickets and whatnot. But you always had to be caught not eating because everything, just like a cult tactic, they never want to leave you alone because you might start having independent thought. Exactly. It's a way of controlling the populace. Starvation, uh, overworking, not having good sleeping, sleep hygiene or sleep, uh, not being able to sleep. And at the end of the week, they would kind of do something that's really similar that we see now in uh, North Korea where they would interview them and be all like, have you noticed anyone suspicious or acting like outside of communist ideals? Getting people to turn on each other for their own safety. Absolutely. And try to divide and rule them completely. So it was pretty brutal. Way to rebuild your society. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of the killing fields, like I said, were uh, filled up with starvation uh, or rice, but they were just simply like, overworked and the amount there was not enough buffer frame no um because they were just constantly starving um they would have this plan should have done like been rolled out like a little bit more slowly or maybe in a more controlled explosive manner you could say but no revolution we have to take action first he took so long to get all the dominoes in place but once the dominoes are falling it's like oh shit it's too fast for us we don't know what to do and this lasted for at least four years. Yeah, it was a very long period of time of people just suffering and toiling. And, like, people so malnourished, their teeth just fall out. Like, yeah. In 1979, the Khmer Rouge once again tried to overstretch their boundaries. They wanted to create their own Angkorian Empire. Yeah, I guess this is the kind of the empire I was talking about earlier. I, I thought it was, like, the Khmer Empire, but no, I think it's kind of the this empire. Anyway, Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge basically 
gets attacked, attacks, like, the newly unified Vietnam, like, in efforts to, like, prompt such an empire. They're like, oh, we have the manpower, we have the strength, even though they're still in the shits. Like, Vietnam is reforming, Cambodia is trying to reform, so I think it's a weird flex but okay kind of moment. It's also been kind of, like, hinted at that, like, like Vietnam has been kind of, like, crossing this border all the time, like, already. Mm-hmm. And I think this is really just him solidifying, like, okay, now you're, like, our enemy. Yeah, yeah. Like, now we're going to shoot back. We're not going to, like, try to do, like, these peace negotiations or, like, go back to your country or, like, don't come try to invade. But, like, they're basically just going to be like, okay, now we're firing, like, yeah. at anyone. Of course, with retaliation begets retaliation. So when Vietnam invades and the Khmer Rouge attack, an occupation is established from Vietnam lasting over 10 years with Cambodia constantly fighting back against them. So once again, Cambodia is engaged in bloody war amongst people that seems like it's never going to end, despite their freedom from France, despite their new shit government and their re-education programs nothing is going according to plan and also during this entire time while like during like the killing field era and uh all of that Pot actually made things worse by agreeing with nixon to bomb heavier parts of cambodia <laughs> so the already most bombed country on earth at the time just agree to more bombing to try to fight the Vietnamese. Right. And the Vietnam was also invading. And so, and like the Khmer people are like, what? Farmers? Peasants? Like, what do they know? <laughs> we don't even have industry to make weapons to counteract this, really. And they're like normally cut off from like the rest of the world, except for like in like these small circumstances. So it's just being bombed to hell and then like like vietnam's like okay well we basically have been kind of playing with this and as soon as you declare on war on us you know they just rush in with like overwhelming force especially with like you know uh they're backed by the soviet union so they Mm -hmm. do have access to weapons and whatnot and um pol pot and the Khmer rouge i think are kind of forced to withdraw from uh, phnom penh for like a really long time yeah uh, because vietnam is just like too powerful as it's the focus center of the world oddly enough though throughout the 80s when this was happening china still supplied arms to cambodia and the u.s backed them politically in a way but it just wasn't enough the khmer rouge was able to hold power but started dwindling around the time of 1991 when a ceasefire between them and vietnam was put in place it's really interesting why the u.s like actually back the Khmer Rouge because I mean it's a communist thing so it's like why would you fund this also they're kind of a terrorist organization that like did the coup and initially they were against them but then they started working with them with like Nixon the bombing thing and then the US was helping back them at this time yeah it's surprising especially considering Vietnam and then growing fears between US and the Soviet Union and I think the only reason why they did this is because the UN decided that, like, Vietnam, Vietnam's actions of invading a foreign power were illegal. So, the current government, they had to recognize the current government at the time, and the only one that was functional was the Khmer Rouge. Oddly enough, like, barely functional, like... Yeah, 
falling apart, like internally collapsing. But with Vietnam controlling them, that means that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, mm-hmm. which is when the U.S. starts supporting Cambodia to fight the Vietnamese. Because the Vietnamese are supported by the Soviet mm-hmm. Union. Yeah. So it's an incomplete entire mess. I see, like, you see how, like, these, like, countries are just being, like, shoved along, like, pieces like, in this weird Cold War They're game. pawns in the chessboard, essentially. And, like, they, like, you know, support them and then don't support them whenever it's, like, convenient. handy. Yeah. yeah. Convenient. Like, they would justify it be like, oh, this horrible genocide happening. But, like, really, it's, like, just self-interest. Yeah. From here, I think things get kind of sad, but, like, in a good way. <laughs> a little bit less child murder sad. Yeah. Yes, less genocide. So, with the U.S. still supporting them, it kind of goes in a weird, bizarre way. Because at this point, the king has been released from his gilded cage. Oh, really? Yeah, and he's, like, like been seeking asylum some, like, certain places whatnot. I think he eventually gets asylum into the United States. And Convenient. so, yeah... And so it's kind of bizarre. There's still a lot of fighting there. And the Khmer Rouge is technically the official government. But the United States has the old king still there. Anyway, it's super bizarre. So they're still backing the Khmer Rouge. They're running from, like, basically the Vietnamese and the United States and China at this point. Because he still technically did crimes against humanity. Mm -hmm. And it's coming more and more out. Yes. So Pol Pot kind of avoided capture from the Vietnamese by going like back into the countryside, like pulling kind of like the Taliban tactic. Mm. Return to the mountains from whence we came. Exactly, and he kind of had like he still had this cold of personality, especially with his creepy, like calm and like smiling voice that like does atrocities. He's kind of has this weird charisma about him, and he goes to those mountains. But his gang starts kind of slowly leaving him, and it reminds me a little bit of Dutch Vanderlyn. <laughs> yeah, he has the ragtag group of supporters, realizing that your power is dwindling, so let's retreat. But then slowly everyone starts falling off like, man, you're crazy. And Paul Pot's like, I got a plan. <laughs> There's always a plan. I got a plan. <laughs> and... He also has this weird naming convention. Apparently his office during this time, like once he settles down into like kind of the mountainous region, is just Office 131. Sounds like an SCP. I know, and it's just like (laughs) apparently like a door in a mountain, basically. Just like... And that's where apparently he's running Cambodia from. Even though his power is dramatically decreasing as there's a huge flood of... has control over three quarters of Cambodia. It's like tiny amount it's marginal at this point and it just dwindles down and down and down and Mm -hmm. down especially as they can't like get anything done yeah so it's at this kind of time period that uh the king returns from cambodia and is backed by the un this time now why would this happen is because Vietnam finally, like, finally treaties and stuff were made and whatnot. Yeah, the ceasefire happens. The ceasefire happens. And things kind of return to normal uh, in Cambodia-ish, but the Khmer Rouge is still, like, on, like, the verge of, like, basically taking things all the way back over. So it's at this pivotal time 
that since the U.S. doesn't really back, you know, um, the Khmer Rouge, that this is like the perfect time to send in their guy. Mm -hmm. But all this happens because the Iron Curtain falls, which is when the Soviet Union collapses. Mm -hmm. And they finally do it at this time region specifically because beforehand the Soviet Union was supporting Vietnam and they were also like kind of worried that they would support the Khmer Rouge and then they'd kind of become best buds and then like no more bombing. Um, but since there's like this peace talk, the Iron Curtain falls, they have no more worries about uh, like big escalating war getting out uh, any time in the near future. Yeah, I'd imagine the UN sees all communist like factions kind of breaking apart, you know, if if the Iron Curtain falls, if Vietnam has left Cambodia, if Cambodia is dealing with their own stuff, it's like, oh, the communist threat is dying down on the Eastern Front, basically. Yeah, and I will also say that maybe as they see other countries not doing as hot, maybe uh, some of the party or members that were with the Khmer Rouge start losing some faith. Anyway, with all this said, the king is now shipped back to Cambodia with all of, uh, with the support of the UN and the world now. They basically quickly take control of Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Like nobody supports, nobody supports the Khmer Rouge anymore. No, I would say that uh, no one uh, supports the Khmer Rouge anymore. The Soviet Union's not there to back them. The United States, as soon as they send their guy back in, goes, "We don't even recognize you as a legitimate organization." Bye. to the Khmer Rouge. Yeah. So they want to install the previous uh, government back in, and so the, the United States obviously tosses them to the side as soon as like the Vietnam War is over. And yeah, everything. of course. Like I said, pawn. So that's why everything gets kind of like crazy and messy. Yeah, I mean it's always been messy. It gets messy again once power starts being reallocated and dwindled. So after this chaos is starting to settle down in July of 1996. More chaos erupts because chaos begets chaos and mutiny breaks out amongst Khmer Rouge as Pol Pot's health starts to decline and they realize, oh, we're not, we don't have control over the people. We don't have control over the country. Our power is super limited. And our cult leader is about to die. Yeah, yeah. The faith is lost there. Everyone within the Khmer Rouge and within Pol Pot supporters are basically doing the same thing the rest of the world is doing and they're they have this infighting going on of who's going to take grabs as everything falls down in 97 of course a splinter group of the Khmer Rouge emerges and they find where Paul Pot's hiding in his little weird room 131 door in yeah. the mountainside <laughs> and they take him and they go you're done you're under house arrest your reign of terror is over which has to be pretty extreme if your own general is like imprisoning you and be all like, bro, chill out, man. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. I think like not even like, I think within that year, some, um, people had come to try to get an interview with him actually. And he had captured the foreigners and just had them killed. <laughs> so, so he's still like grabbing at thralls, like grabbing at straws like don't let anyone know what's going on don't let the interview happen we're still good guys we're still in control no and he was pretty elusive since he went under like multiple names we talked about earlier yeah. how he changed his name from like you know like paul and then like paul pot so he would do that and he also really liked to rule from the shadows he never wanted to be a public persona right unlike so, most like cult leaders or very big dictators they want 
kind of that name and spotlight, but Pol Pot didn't. Yeah, he kind of wanted to be the one in the back rooms, kind of moving yeah, things along. pulling the strings. And I guess the only person that would really know how to find you then is your own general that betrays you, right? Of course. And also they knew that he was going to die, so like it might have been a way to kind of save face. Like we all like, oh, let me, I established power by like, you know, imprisoning him and like whatnot and putting him on trial. The Chimera Rouge had a trial for him, which I thought is kind of cute. Well, also after he had been put under house arrest, the United Nations Transitional Authority in Cambodia called UNTAC or called UNTAC approached the UN itself to prosecute senior Khmer Rouge members for their crimes against humanity, including Pol Pot. So people are finally going, all right, this guy needs to be brought to justice. However, before the hammer of justice could be brought down, on April 15th of 1998, at the age of 72, the ripe old age of 72, Pol Pot died in his sleep. Some say it's because he tried to kill himself, but it was probably just kind of, he probably let himself go and he had a heart attack. Yeah, I think before his capture, he already had a pre-established uh, heart issue that let left him partially paralyzed so i mean the yeah, fact yeah. that his in-group already knew he was on the outs it makes sense that he died in his sleep but it's so unsatisfying when a dictator just passes away nicely in their sleep yeah they didn't get the full Gaddafi treatment which i fully support for pol pot if we could retroactively give him the Gaddafi treatment okay now, although Pol Pot was tried in absentia like other senior members of the Khmer Rouge, he was never actually punished for his crimes. So it was kind of saving face, like, oh, this guy did bad stuff, let's try him. But he was never punished. He kind of just got away with genocide. And like many horrendous people, he had no atonement or resolution, and his victims never received any closure. In fact, in the last interview he ever he ever gave, uh, they asked him, uh, "Do you regret anything that happened?" He's like, "I regret none of my actions." You have to know, I did what was best for the country. That's so delusional. Or I did what I thought was best for the country. <laughs> Starve them, yes. Yeah, he he's like, no, no, I would have done it all again. I would have done it all the same way, which is completely insane. Like he had no passing thoughts. Like, oh, he may have. He just put them in the vault. I guess so. <laughs> anyway, in total, only five members of the Chimera Rouge were ever indicted for their war crimes, three of which were convicted to life sentences, one unfit for trial, and one died. So, yes, our UNTAC group, we're going to try the senior members. It led to nothing. It was a waste of time, basically. Yeah, for show. Yeah, it was a dog and pony show, which is crazy to think that like such a like just Pol Pot and the Chimera Rouge's like reign of terror and genocide that lasted for like four years and in four years like eliminated almost a fourth of the Cambodian people, which is insane. Obviously, he spent many years before building up to that, and obviously had his downfall in the years after, but just the sheer amount of lives lost in such a short time span is really absurd. 
there's a difficulty establishing a definitive number of victims of the Cambodian genocide, especially because Cambodia's enemy Vietnam invaded and released the records. But there's speculation that the deaths could have been exaggerated because of Vietnam's involvement. However, estimates range that between 1.5 to 3 million people have died at the hands of the Khmer Rouge, with the consensus being approximately 2 million people dead in four years. I mean, that's still a lot of people. And there's still, like, concerns that there might be, like, a growing threat of communism in, like, Southeast Asia... Uh, because of the support but it didn't sound like that much support to me yeah but apparently the level of support the Khmer Rouge received from fellow communist states North Vietnam and China also meant that there were concerns over the spread of communism in Southeast Asia which I don't think there was it was just all opportunistic that's what it seemed like to me yeah fair enough but anyway Cambodia became functional Democracy? Democratic Kampuchea? (laughs) (laughs) An actual one this time? Ah, sure. Yeah, (laughs) still kind of shaky. In uh, 1993, when their constitution was ratified, but the country still doesn't quite want to, like, look at those four years in particular. It's pretty hard. I mean, Germany still has a tarnish on their name because of World War II, so that's, like... Committing genocide against your people is not something that's going to be easily swept under the rug, even if you're like a smaller country like Cambodia that other global players swept under the rug. Yeah, and I think his legacy is pretty easy to see from that, Mm -hmm. just that it almost wants to be something that's not thought of. Almost just like sometimes like he kind of almost wanted to be like not a part of it, even though he was yeah, like right I in the am not of it. the face. I am behind controlling the strings. Which imagine uh if you were one of those people, how weird it would be not to have a face to tie to like what's being happening like what's happening to you. It's just like this ominous dark figure that well, you've heard about. Being um re educated with the ideas of communism or at least Paul Pot's communism you wouldn't expect a face. If you're all supposed to be equals, you go, oh yes, we're all equal in what's happening, but not really. Yeah. Yeah, I guess he becomes like the idea of Big Brother at that point. Yeah. Um, I mean, also his legacy would be kind of like, don't do communism this way. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say like either way, but I mean, if you are going to do it, this is probably one of the worst ways to do it. I think for me, one of the things that stands out from his legacy is like what could have been had Pol Pot not taken over Cambodia and basically raised it to the ground. What would the country be like today? I would imagine they would have technological advancements and obviously not the like mark of genocide on your entire country. Maybe being more of a country like Singapore or something. Yeah, either like Singapore or what would be another one? I mean, heck, Albania. If a communist revolution still did spread. Yeah. 
it's just weird to think that like at least as far as i knew about cambodia before researching this i was like oh it's a war-torn country the end which to be fair it has its bloodshed and war-torn i mean it was like one of the most shelled places in the world at around this period of time that if not still it still might be up there yeah so had none of this happened i think cambodia would be in a vastly different place which is a legacy in a way i would say so also maybe with pol pot's legacy kind of shows maybe he just needed to have more patience I, I would say it kind of shows that, like, specializations can sometimes exist in society for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't put all your stats into your farmers. Yeah, don't put all your stats into your farmers. That doesn't work out quite as well. So with that, that's his legacy kind of, like, out there in the world. But, like, what really, what's his legacy to, like, us? Or, like, I would say maybe some chilling thoughts we had while uh, researching this. Yeah, I think the thing that stood out to me most was basically his demeanor. I mean, throughout his entire reign of power, he was a very cold and calm personality. According to the communist biography on him, he's quoted to have the following temperament. He has large spirit of union, is deeply and firmly confident in the people, the masses, especially in the poor peasants. Likely because he knew how he could manipulate them, for sure. I Also, the lasting impression that Paul Pot had on me was that, scarily enough, he was also noted to like to live and work in the calm, which we saw where he was in his... Uh, like Silver his Pagoda? Silver Pagoda, having tea calmly, just chill discussing matters of genocide without flaring up in any form of anger he really at least to me my impression was that he captured that quiet calm supervillain personality which i think makes you scarier the quieter you are the less of a face you are the more influence you have and the more powerful you actually are or become yes it almost reminds me a little bit of that uh like Wilford inside of Snowpiercer mm. in the uh, the movie, um, the American movie. Uh, I mean, where, he had an idea, not necessarily a face. It reminds me of the engineer because he's uh, calm and serene in that scene. He's like, oh, yes, I designed this entire train and all of its miseries. And there are children working the gears. And it's fine. Like, he's like, yeah, have a seat, get some coffee. Like, you know, yeah. how's your day going? Do you Do you like scrambled eggs? Very collected, almost like... Putting on that front that a lot of sociopaths have of like, I'm I'm nice, I'm chill, I'm personable, people enjoy being around me because I don't freak them out. Yeah, he's kind of all like, oh yes, go ahead, kill them all, I don't care. Smiles like in a huge, nice, like big smile. What about for you? What was the lasting impression on you? I think it was that and like him in the Silver Pagoda, like with like desolation, like around him that that really cemented it for me with his like chilling thoughts but i also thought it was kind of creepy with like the no face thing that you're going by not only did it have no face at times he also kind of had no name at times true because once he was forced out of the uh his position of power in 1979 uh and it went to vietnam when he was around in the mountainside he would not like he would go by like paul you go by pot like paul pot 
he would also go uh he eventually permanently changed it to nem kind of like uh non-nem i I guess but just like nem and then he changed it to puk and then hey and then he changed it to paul again like 87 he's also known as the grand uncle also known as elder brother also known as first brother also known as 99 so lots of amorphous personalities all tied to the same man kind of like with petio having multiple aliases and like his fake passports of whatever but they're all tied to the same guy but you never can really put your finger on who is the guy running cambodia exactly and i i I thought it was like even kind of creepier is that like sometimes it's been said that the images will differ it might just be with age and also it's hard to capture like a photo of him but they all look kind of similar but like sometimes they're slightly different kind of hinting at that like almost like he was like pol pot was almost just an idea he was the banksy of cambodia (laughs) yeah i think that's kind of creepy especially with the multiple names I guess you could say Banksy of Cambodia, but like if it was just a pseudonym and it was all attached to one specific guy, what I think is kind of crazy is that you might have had an interaction with him as a Cambodian and then just never have known about it. It'd be like, oh, mm-hmm. that 99 guy seems really like nice and like personable or he knows the plight of the farmers. Wow. And also somehow through all of like this name changing and whatnot and being in the backgrounds, he still somehow manages to hold on to power for such a long time. And also get to the ranks he does without being like at forefront. Quelled, yeah. And he's just like quietly doing it. Even though he wasn't like that like good of a student, I think he was a really good student of people. He must have been really observant. Also, apparently he would memorize things about you. He sounds like the classic cold anime villain. <laughs> Fair enough. So that must mean that he is at least a good student of people because otherwise i he's just so charismatic that obviously he can be in the background and for a select like a select few key groups of people he's able to control and manipulate their levers mm-hmm. to end up doing what he like does puppet master within cambodia since he couldn't control like the large strings of like the united states and the soviet <laughs> union which speaking of which the reverse Stalinism is kind of interesting to me. It can kind of show, like, I, I think what's really creepy about it is with the reverse Stalinism is, like, the killing of intellectuals and, like, de-techifying. Especially since I work in tech, I think tech, like, really helps people, mm-hmm. um, especially to increase not only... Productivity. Not only productivity, but also functionality and comfort within people's lives. And or, ideas, like, too. And ideas. It's kind of, like, horrifying to think of, like the hunting and killing of so much like productivity almost kind of like thinking about like the burning of alexandra except in this case within cambodia and on top of that the reverse Stalinism just like it seems to like you're purging people out in order to go kind of backwards in the hopes that in the future you'll go forwards with your own culture and whatnot but i don't think you can really fast forward that progress no especially not in your own lifetime i think it's very counterintuitive and there's like neo-ludditeism just really set the country back obviously but like i don't think it was planned out very well no absolutely not and i wonder if that's 
because of stupidity or if it is just because of like maybe a bit of malice and directionlessness maybe his calmness and his kind of mishmash of like certain philosophies just kind of like deluded him i mean obviously he's kind of delusional in the end yeah so maybe he was always kind of delusional maybe that's kind of what gave him like his air of charisma like he had it all put together but like with this like delusional grandiosity of the capability of people to create civilization you mentioned the influence of the philosophies on him did you want to kind of touch on those aspects yeah like john jacques rousseau oh my god oh fuck me (laughs) it was never Um, explicitly stated that he studied rousseau but as you've mentioned he really shines through in paul potts works i guess he rousseau shines through everywhere in paul potts works and especially makes sense because he went to uh paris to study Mm -hmm. Uh, rousseau is um well known during um the french revolution kind of that era of the enlightenment philosophy and whatnot and we know that he was interested in the french revolution or many revolutions of any kind really Mm -hmm. he was looking for a revolution that's what he was looking for that's what he got that's what he made but the french revolution is on one of the things that he studied as well as um lenin's revolution and mao's revolution um he probably also studied most the french revolution where rousseau does play a i wouldn't say grand role but definitely a very distinct role within that time frame so he definitely would have been discussing rousseau when he was smoking in the back alleys with some of the communists and whatnot <laughs> we're in the basement yeah we're in the basement now rousseau has many different ideas but i think what ideas that uh, pol pot really like latched onto were social contract theory and kind of the idea of the noble savage which is so social contract theory is a little bit kind of hard to explain. Uh, well, it's not hard to explain. Uh, I just haven't read it in a really long time. But uh, the noble savage is pretty easy. The theory is, is without tools or technology or society, um, human beings are innately good people. Or they have a better time. They enjoy their time better. To where he thought bringing people back to agrarianism would be a clean slate where everyone's actually equal. Right. Uh, you could say that the use of tools might not be the perfect noble savage, but way better as like, if you're going to have society included inside of it, mm-hmm. that's like the least intrusive, um, the least thing that corrupts individuals into, into, into doing evil things. Because glasses make you very corrupt. <laughs> yeah. The basic argument is that you get an iPhone and all of a sudden you become a uh, dictator who kills millions of people. Or, I mean, run a corporation. Or, I mean... Become a TikTok star. Yeah. So that's that, that's the basic thought. And it's uh, I personally think it's very morally flawed. Um, I don't think that humans are innately good. I'm more of a Hobbesian kind of guy. <laughs> but that's one of the things that he states. The other one is kind of a social contract theory, which does play into a lot of uh, political philosophy. It kind of goes with that anytime we're born into like a government or whatnot we have a like a social contract or what's expected out of each party and basically he just kind of outlines how that should be represented like he doesn't believe that like just because you're born in a country you have to necessarily be part of that country it's only because you are fulfilling the societal contract with whatever country you were born into mm. so it's kind of like an idea that like really the people have the power 
instead of having like the divine right of God or something being like, okay, this person can rule. Which ties back into the Marxist ideologies. Right. The Marxist ideology would also be with the people. The power comes from the people. Rousseau would say that's that the power comes from the people individually to have a social contract with whatever system that they're involved with. Hmm. Therefore, it is technically like their responsibility at the end of the day. And he goes into discussing like French Revolution and whatnot. That's Jean-Jacques Rousseau. But here's like a few different points um, I quickly got from an article that kind of outline these two ideas and that I think Pol Pot would have like instantly attached onto. So one of these little quotations is, he argues that the rich have become dependent on the poor as they no longer know how to provide for themselves. While peasants are used for manual labor and could be to some extent self-reliant, a point that differentiates his philosophy from that of Marx. So he's saying here that like, manual labor, all this kind of stuff of where like it's the peasants who provide and they become Mm self-reliant and that they're able to like, if everyone's self-reliant, obviously the country's self-reliant, which is something that Pol Pot was obviously looking for. So he thought just by like, you know, throwing someone out there and forcing them to do manual labor, that they'll become self-sufficient no matter where they are in the country. He didn't want his country to be dependent on the poor. He wanted them to be on that same playing field. Correct. To their detriment. Yes, what ended up being to their detriment. And another one from the similar article says, In order to become free, every individual must give up all of his rights to the entire community, creating the same conditions for all, and thus equality. A bowl of rice a day. A bowl of rice a day. Everyone gets a bowl of rice today. There's many more things. Obviously, I didn't go and uh, get Rousseau stuff for this specifically. Just quick article snippets but i hate rousseau so if you want to comment why you love rousseau and torture me you know where to find me committee at worlddomination.ca anyway i see jean-jacques rousseau so much in paul pot and so much the idea of kind of returning back to a more primitive society and then building it from there with more pure thoughts and ideals getting rid of the old coming in with the new yeah yeah curing them purging them whatever and this idea in like the self-reliant farmer who can get everything done uh, or like the noble savage so that's where i really saw rousseau come out a lot in pol pot i'm sure there's other things i just can't think of them right now but that That was what immediately leapt out to you that's what immediately leapt out to me although i think this kind of dovetailed into pol pot's also imagination of uh, mao's ideology especially Mao's idea of cultural revolution. I think that a lot of what Pol Pot was trying to do was mix Rousseau's ideology and Mao's ideology with the capability of Stalin or like a Hitler, because he also wanted to do it very fast and efficient, which you could say corrupts his entire like society at the root because he goes so far left but in such a way that he basically just becomes an extreme fascist again (laughs) or a dictator and without him things start to fall apart and don't remain at a stable structure especially because his implementation so quickly and so fast especially the rushing of it uh really ruined everything and at its fundamental like belief system you can see like where some of like rousseau's ideology falters Anyway, that's what I would say, especially like, you know, regarding kind of like Mao's cultural reformation to 
what Pol Pot wanted to be a cultural slash agrarian revolution. I think he also touched on a good point there where he moved too quickly and executed it too poorly to the point that he lost control of it. Essentially, when he was trying to bring his country with communism, he was taking the Marxist idea of trying to get everyone on an equal playing field, returning the rights to the workers by making everyone workers. But the fact that he starved them out and overworked them and tried to achieve everything too quickly was to that detriment. He did not execute it correctly. And I think that's what happens with a lot of people, specifically dictators, trying to implement communism. You have this human bias and you have these poor implementation practices where it's not the idea of communism that's bad, it's the person who is trying to put it in place in the first place. And with Pol Pot trying to hold this power over his people, whatever the true intent may have been, he wanted to pull the strings, and that's why his idea of communism did not work in Cambodia, and that's why his people suffered for it. Maybe it could be said with the stupidity argument it's been said that he actually didn't he he read marx but that he did not like marx and i wonder if it's because with uh, marx being economist and also kind of getting the idea of communism from um hegel originally if uh like a dialectical approach might have been taken to cambodia <laughs> maybe this could have been avoided but obviously he did the implementation maybe way too fast and wasn't leaning on Marx. Maybe he was just leaning more on Stalin. And maybe he just wanted that personal power over a large dominion right. in the end. It's hard to say, especially because... It's hard to find interviews with him. You don't really fully know what he wanted other than bringing the people back together. Yeah, and there's some writings from him, but they're mostly kind of like a loose description of mm -hmm. things. They're not as concrete. Right. It's kind of in a more traditional eastern this is what buddhist we're doing for the country this is how we put things into place yeah and it just kind of flowed instead of being set out in like a structured and giving true intent yeah well do you want to cover his villains arc i yeah. mean that, we could probably talk about my hatred of jean-jacques rousseau all day <laughs> um i just i, I can't think of your philosophy like, hat's burnt out yeah, my philosophy hat's burnt out. I, I, I can only think about villains arc because otherwise my brain's going to explode. <laughs> no, that's okay. I think it's time to tie this little Paul pot up with a nice bow. So we'll we'll go through a quick summary of everything we've talked about today. His threshold was moving to Paris from Cambodia and experiencing a bunch of weird ineptitudes as part of his studies and feeling like an outsider in his peers, but also being ostracized by colonialism in his home country. And I would say that his mentors during this time period were the works of, uh, or works about Stalin, the works of Mao with the little red book. And uh, obviously, I'm pretty sure we're so. Yeah, and a bit of a springboard off of Marx, but as we just discussed, going away from that especially. Of course, he was motivated by communism and removing colonial power, but I think subtly he actually just wanted power and controlling his people. Which I guess led to his revelation of joining the Cambodian revolutionaries against France. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. he had good intentions before he snaked his way to the top. Yeah, let's become a state independent of another country, but then once you get a taste of that power... You know, maybe this is when like it was kind of before he got into his teaching days or it was rejected by the uh, other communist. It was that moment 
the first moment like evil occurred is when he's like oh we have to do this through the system and yeah, then became a teacher system. and like whatnot and went on from there and setting that up for his rebirth and transformation after Cambodia gained independence, he joined the KRPR and started educating people and working more closely with revolutionaries to get everyone on the same page, at least as far as he could without denying resources for everyone. Basically, transforming the Khai Rouge into his personal military. And transforming Cambodia to being controlled by them. Which would lead, obviously, to his event horizon, which is the genocide of, I, I guess, I would say own people, but maybe certain select groups of people within Cambodia. Around two million of Cambodians. Yes, or at least a quarter. I think also the point of no return was specifically like the aftermath of the killing fields is realizing the sheer amount of chaos and torture that was put in place. But as happens with a lot of historical figures, he did not have any atonement and his resolution was just his death. And he wasn't tried or convicted for any of his crimes, but he definitely left a lasting legacy on the country. Yeah, a legacy of a quarter of Cambodians dead under Pol Pot. Starvation, assassinations, brutal beatings, illness. If you had your grandma was taking some pills or whatnot to keep her back and she had starving children and then her children just starved, but she still had medicine to try to survive, they would come in there and take that medicine. Yeah. That they, they do not care. That is against the state. That's going to be the legacy of Popot is going to be the fear and the red scare that he left in places like Cambodia. Yeah, exactly. It'll People never be the same. already afraid of communism, but this just kind of propelled that fear further. And especially, like, the fear of, like, maybe what just, like, certain ideologies and architecture can do to a state that already was in chaos, but was plunged into, like, the depths of hell. Exactly. I think, I guess, for two last notes about the legacy, we still have landmarks outlining what Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge did to Cambodia, specifically with the ex-school slash S21 prison, which was turned into a museum today. So people can actually go in and see where the scene of many executions took place and feel all of the lost lives from that. Not to mention that there is still just mass graves that litter. The, the killing fields themselves mm -hmm. are still pretty prominent in Cambodia with just like cases of skulls being put up on display. So yeah, a lot of fear, a lot of bodies mm -hmm. left behind without much progress other than once things ended, a new government was installed by the ones pulling the big strings. So how would you describe this guy's archetype? That is a good question. I think he would definitely fall under, like, kind of like the classic villain, like, mastermind. Like, mm -hmm. he kind of seems like a final boss. <laughs> like, one that's been, like, in the shadows working. Like, I remember I used to play this game called Dynasty Warriors, and there was always one he was like uh like one character i don't think you could play him but he was like known as like the tactician and he was always super hard but it was not because he was actually hard he was like the kind of like the final boss you had to get to him but when you got to him it only took like one or two hits and he was dead but the problem was is that he had like the largest like brute force most like beefy like things to get through ah i see in the order barriers to... around him the human shields the human shields mm. all of, like you know and that's what made him tough. And so I would think he's kind of like a mastermind, like kind of like that character or someone like, um, I mean, he's not this smart. So 
not saying anything, but from um, Watchmen, Ozymandias, mm. because Ozymandias likes to operate in the shadows, even though he's pulling strings from like multiple different like locations, right, like you know, right. you know, always being like nice in front of the public and whatnot, but then like organizing Behind like giant stores. octopuses yeah. to fall on top of New York. <laughs> it's to bring people together. So yeah, I would I would say I would definitely classify him as a, a, as mastermind villain or a classic villain. How about you? I could see that. I I agree with that stance. I also could see some people arguing that Paul Pot could be at least before the genocide stuff maybe an anti-villain. I mean, initially his intentions of bringing the country back together and to gain independence from France and to be autonomous is like a valiant effort but he took such evil actions to get to that point especially thinking about how he tried to institute communism to better the country while actually just sending it into further chaos and ruin so i think you could argue before his event horizon of genocide maybe some could see him as an anti-villain i don't really think he is i think he started by trying to maybe make his country better but just sent everything into a tailspin of chaos because of his actions. Yeah, I think as uh, before the event horizon, you could also argue that he's just kind of an authority figure, just kind of keeping the country together. Yeah, sort of, or at least factions of the country. Yeah, I would say so. I think that's pretty accurate. So yeah, I'd probably go with, he's probably the mastermind. Yeah, I think that's the best suited for him, especially how he laid all the dominoes out. Okay, so now that we know he's a mastermind, what kind of alignment do you think this mastermind would have? Mmm... I I think at least because of the lasting impression that he left, he was kind of chaotic evil. I mean, he did whatever he wanted with the idea of the people in mind, but most notably hurt the people with that intention. Usually, like, a chaotic evil character doesn't regard the rules and works outside of the system, which he kind of did because there was no system in place once the Civil War was over. But I guess you could say he established the system as part of his coming to power. So maybe the chaotic aspect doesn't really fall into place for him. Yeah, I was about to say, I was wondering if it might be lawful evil. I mean, I can see where you're coming with the chaos since there's being like no system like in place. Mm-hmm. But I think when there was a semblance of a system in place, he kind of followed all that. I mean, he be- he did become a teacher he did join like the party and i think when things kind of fell into great chaos that's when um he, i think he was still following the law of his organization right. at least yeah and, so maybe he was the chaos was just a circumstance he was working with it was not an essence of his character yeah that's what i'm thinking because i'm thinking even when there was chaos and chaos came to happen he was always trying to go by like what the law says and then eventually he becomes the law yeah and so like I mean, just kind of like based off this description, organized evil with a master plan uses organization rules and honor to their advantage, inflicting their will on others by achieving power within a system not to be underestimated. Yeah, that like hits the nail on the head. He fits that description way better than chaotic, I would say. Yeah, I I would say so. Like he just uses the rules. Technically, he doesn't go and shoot anyone. He just uses the law to oppress his people and his design is what made he uses all the them law suffer. to get his lackeys to shoot the people it's not him doing it exactly the entire genocide was created by basically a law mm-hmm. like you know and that's all it was and so he used his will to oppress others via a law which i don't even know if you could call a law so it's arguing because it's not written down right 
so it's instituted? It is instituted, so it is a policy at least. Yeah. And I guess in a country that has just gotten out of colonial rule, there is only policy. Right. If you have multiple factions vying for power, there is not an official law, so it's whoever holds the most power makes the law, which Pol Pod did. Now, we could see him as a mastermind, but based off of that, I also now kind of see him as chaotic stupid. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Oh, turn everyone back into farmers <laughs> is a pretty dumb idea, but yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And he was just kind of like taking advantage of the chaos at this, like at the time, but like then chaos ensued. Cause, I mean, theoretically, if like his ideology went perfectly, the more farmers, more food, more people, more babies, industrial. I mean, it sounds kind of like if you don't think it through all the way. Yeah, you don't it, play the tape to the end. The strategy sounds fine. So maybe as the mastermind and strategist, he was just very, uh, he didn't have his stats done correctly. He didn't plan accordingly right and he was always in the background too so like he had no backup when things went south like he had child soldiers as backup i uh, uh, yeah <laughs> yeah but i mean just reading this description also makes sense to me abides by no rules whatsoever not laws not customs not ethics especially not common sense or any concept of basic self-preservation his self-preservation was being in his pagoda drinking tea and be like ah we'll see what happens so i, I think he Overall was not a chaotic, stupid archetype, but he definitely made a lot of stupid decisions. It could have been narcissism. True, true. Just like a very low-key narcissism. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'd probably go with uh, lawful evil. I think The that... worst type of bureaucrat. Yeah. <laughs> when you let the Volgons get too much power. <laughs> well, with that out of the way, what made you villainous this month? Well, nothing can compare to genocide. (laughs) (laughs) The sweet sounds of screaming children. Uh, Well, I guess on the fun villainous side, I heard the the sweet sounds of screaming gay people because I proliferated the gay agenda by infiltrating a pride parade. Woo! Uh, Where we live, pride happens later for some reason because where we live wants to be unique. So I went to baby's first pride event. I started by going to a life drawing event, drawing beautiful people in the park, but being blasted by EDM music and promptly leaving because it was way too loud. But at the actual Pride Parade, we went late, met up with a friend who was dressed in cosplay. We were also dressed in cosplay, not for Comic-Con, but for Pride as Marceline and Bubblegum. And we went and tried to catch up with the Pride Parade by walking very fast for a long time and eventually caught up with it to watch it and slowly, meticulously snuck our way into the end of the Pride Parade, feeling like special Comic-Con gay babies. So that was fun. We also, well, at least I snuck some illicit items into the Pride Festival, notably an umbrella, which dun, was dun, dun. against the code of conduct. And I've, I felt very evil bringing an umbrella to a festival. And lastly... I confused crows. I have a kazoo thingy, a crow collar, (laughs) one could say. Oh my gosh, it sounds the worst. And I was on the balcony and I saw a crow fly by and I wanted to test it. So I went, using the kazoo and the crow basically stopped midair and was looking around because I was using the come here call. And the crow was like, what the fuck? Where are you? And it was just kind of flying around in circles. And I kept kazooing to the crow and it was yelling at me and then eventually flew away because 
it didn't realize that I was actually a, a, a human. Well, how about that? Crow chaos. One day you'll join the avian society. <laughs> One day I will be crow witch. Yes. For me, well, I was doing my normal evil business stuff. As you do. You know, just normal. Engineering. Evil business. And I was in talks of perhaps joining this board or looking into uh, a few different organizations in which I'm interested in. Are you planning on leaving us? No, 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 no. Uh, a board member uh, as a lesser to the World Domination Committee. So, mm. in effect, kind of like how I run a, a few other things in the background, like Tesla was actually me. Yeah, like, you know, it's one of those companies. And while I was doing this, maybe I had stepped on a few wrong toes on the way there. And I know I threatened you listeners with feedback last time. It seems that someone actually put a hit on me as well. I was able to dodge an assassination attempt during the last time that you've heard me, dear listeners. Yes, that is right. Your goons do not scare me. I will join whichever board I wish to join. And your goons hold no power over my vile, demonic plans. But no, uh, I was coming home after parting ways with a friend from a, from a bar and uh, got attacked by like four people trying to ask me for money. It's not fun. Trying they broke- to ask you for money? Yeah. They were trying to rob you. The goons were trying to steal World Domination Committee secrets. Yes, they were trying to get our information, especially for corporate espionage, as they wanted to see what kind of information I had gathered in my trying to join another organization. But I valiantly defended it with my hand, which was swiftly broken (laughs) by a kick to it. And I was outnumbered, so I did the most villainous thing, and I ran. But I ran in zigzags. They they had no way of getting to me. And I got away scot-free. Your assassination attempts do not scare me, but I will join your board. Anyway, that's what I've done, Villainous, this month. I continue to exist and spread my plague amongst the world. Speaking of spreading the plague... If you'd like to be part of the World Domination Committee, follow us on whatever interface you like to listen to podcasts on, and leave us a review. Or you know what happens. You can also infiltrate the Wired with us at worlddomination.ca. Send us some villainous correspondence to committee at worlddomination.ca. Yes, I will join your board. And our mail servers are down right now, but they should be up by the time this episode comes out. Yeah. You can read our infrequent and snarky remarks on the hellscape that is Twitter. Yes, I'm still calling it Twitter because I am X. I came first. Find us at the WDC podcast. Actually, that uh, X is secretly a board member. I am secretly Twitter. Yeah, so. It's me. (laughs) If you get shadow banned... Email us at committee at worlddomination.ca and see what shenanigans that I'm up to at trin.tech. T-R-Y-N-N dot T-E-C-H. Try and get on my level and be as villainous as me by proliferating the gay agenda and reading what we do in the closet on top us. Well, that's all, fuckers! This podcast was brought to you by... Bad Baby. Productions.
Good night, babies.